Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Two reports into alleged lockdown gatherings are released, one in Dublin, the other in Westminster. We'll have the latest on the celebrations at the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Downing Street parties. We take a wider look at Ireland's mental health services in the wake of a damning report into the CAMS controversy in Kerry. And after a protest by some of the biggest legends in rock, Spotify says it will put an advisory on its COVID content. I'll speak to broadcaster Dave Fanning. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. begin with developing news tonight and a report into the gathering at the Department of Foreign Affairs has been released. Virgin Media News political correspondent Gavin Riley joins me now live with the very latest. Gavin, uh, welcome to the programme. Can you tell us exactly what this internal report into the party at Ivy House has found? I suppose the headline finding, Claire, is that it finds that this particular gathering on the evening of June 17th, 2020, which was marking Ireland's election to the UN Security Council that evening, uh, was not organised or pre-planned in any way. That is the finding of Joe Hackett, who's now the Secretary General. He has issued this report. Itself is 18 pages, but it's accompanied by over 300 pages of appendices and other annexes, if you like. It says that all of the documentary and oral material received by it shows that the gathering itself was not pre-planned, but that it had been indicated that the part, the team uh, within the UN unit of the Department of Foreign Affairs were going to get together that evening because they anticipated a long work or a long night of work ahead. Their ex- expectation at the time, and this is supported by the, the hundreds of pages of other documents, were that they were going to be looking at another long night of work because they didn't expect Ireland to get elected to the UN Security Council on the first count. So they were getting ready to try and uh, divvy up all the work and all the calls that would have to be made to other UN missions around the world, basically in overnight lobbying to try and get Ireland home on the second count. But as it happened, Ireland got elected on the first count. And that is what led then to the gathering, which you saw on your screen just a moment ago, which the report says was largely instigated by the person at the front of that picture. That's Niall Burgess, who was then the Secretary General of the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs, that is effectively the highest ranking civil servant in that department. Uh, It says that he effectively um, instigated the get together and instigated this instance in which social distancing measures were not followed. Moreover, it says three other senior officials who are also in that picture, who are senior officials in the UN unit of the Department of Foreign Affairs, although not instigating the whole affair, didn't do much to make sure that social distancing was observed in that instance. So effectively, it says that this was an isolated incident when Simon Coveney was back at the department later, social distancing was being followed, but it finds that those those senior officials, if you like, were essentially the ones who were responsible for social distancing not being observed on that occasion. And Gavin, apologies are one thing. Uh, What about sanctions here? It was a breach of COVID rules. So what's going to happen in that regard? 
Well, officially speaking, the, the sanction which can be given to these civil servants, it's very difficult to actually issue a sanction to a civil servant. What has been agreed in this instance is that because this picture, since it was republicized at the end of December, has caused such distress to so many people who made personal sacrifices in the course of COVID-19, gave up seeing loved ones and didn't have any kind of social occasions, even if it was on, on the margins of, of a work event. Uh, they have, they have Simon uh, Niall, Niall Burgess, the Secretary General, has agreed to donate €2,000 to a charity which is dealing with people who are personally affected by COVID-19 in that way. The other three senior officials, who it should be noted are not identified by name in this report, have all agreed to make donations of €1,000 each. Now, Joe Hackett, the Secretary General, the author of the report, says that he believes that that is the end of it and no further sanction is needed. There's also been a statement this evening in accompanying the release of this from the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney. He says that the report is a fair and balanced account into the events which took place on that night. He notes the conclusions and he welcomes the actions being taken by the Secretary General. I suppose the question, Claire, is whether that will be the end of it for Simon Coveney, because this evening we've also received a statement from Sinn Féin. Their deputy leader, Pierce Doherty, says that he doesn't simply think that it's tenable at all that Simon Coveney would now commission this report, which finds fault at the, f- the feet of senior officials, but that Simon Coveney was made aware of this incident the morning after it took place and chose not to act on it for 18 months. He wants to know why it is considered appropriate now for Simon Coveney to give his blessing to these de facto sanctions uh, when Simon Coveney took no action at the time. This is something which is likely going to be raised when the Oireachtas Committee on Foreign Affairs meets this coming Wednesday. They had asked for Simon Coveney to attend them for questioning whenever this report was published. So I suppose we can expect him now to be appearing in fairly short order. OK, Gavin Riley, thank you for that update for us tonight. Well, Senator Malcolm Byrne from Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin TD Mark Ward are with me in studio. And just to get some reaction to this and to that report, um, it did find, and it was an internal report, so um, we have to bear that in mind, but it was not organised and not pre-planned. Um, Simon Coveney says a fair and balanced account um, there. And what do you think of it, Malcolm Byrne? Do you think it's, a, it's case closed on this? Well, I, I haven't obviously read uh, the full report, um, but I think what is clear is it was wrong. It shouldn't have happened. Uh, I think the parties who've been involved have acknowledged uh, that very clearly. Uh, I think there's been some effort to try to conflate what happened in Ivy House with what has been happening uh, in Downing Street. They're certainly not the same. To take, to take this issue to hand, though, and, and what we were hearing from Gavin there about Simon Coveney, when he knew and why he didn't insist on sanctions 18 months ago. Well, look, th- this was a, a spontaneous gathering, as, as, as Gavin would have outlined. We successfully uh, had won a seat at the UN Security Council. Uh, there was a celebration took place, a spontaneous celebration by all accounts, in the Department of Foreign Affairs. It is wrong. It shouldn't have happened. That, that's been found. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Minister should certainly go before, as he promised, uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence, uh, which is uh, meeting uh, on Wednesday, if the Minister can do that and answer any questions uh, that like are there. what sort of questions? Well, I, I, th- I think there were certain questions around, you know, what did the minister know? I think he should know the, the, the detail of the report. Uh, I think there are clearly sanctions recommended, and I understand that the officials are, are, are you know, are going to, uh, to pay those, uh, those sums of money over. Um, uh, you know, it was, it was a salutary lesson, and I think there were also lessons, I guess, around, you know, the use of social media um, within the Department of Foreign Affairs. I think one of the concerns that I would have had would have been, look, I can understand, you know, some of the junior officials who would have been working on that campaign, you know, were obviously with, with the Secretary General, the ultimate boss mm. within in the department, uh, that they had, uh, you know, they may have felt the, being under a little bit of pressure. So issues have to yeah. be learned from that. But I, I do think, as I said, without having read uh, the full report, uh, I think that, that uh, there is an acknowledgement that it was wrong. 
uh, and the department will have learned from it. Okay, uh, Mark Ward on this, do you believe that the book stop, stops with the Minister for Foreign Affairs here? Um, it was um, a celebration that took place in Ivy House, the report finding that it wasn't a pre-planned celebration. We have to look back at the time that this so-called celebration happened, where people were asked to, to limit their movements. They couldn't see families and friends. They couldn't go to funerals. They weren't allowed around loved ones. All this was happening where this, this celebration was going on. The, the minister knew about it 18 months ago. He should have started imposing the sanctions then 18 months ago instead of having this drawn-out uh, saga that's going on now at the moment. Uh, Mark, can I, can I just make a point that, you know, you say people couldn't go to funerals. Only three weeks after the events uh, that took place, uh, in Ivy House, uh, the Bobby Story military parade and funeral took place where Pierce Doherty attended. There was no social distancing. Large crowds gathered that, that, that was there. Now, I'm not going to go into the, the whole debate around that again, but I do find it kind of hypocritical um, that Pierce Doherty, who, you know, a few weeks after the I'm... Department of Foreign Affairs event, uh, you know, is now kind of calling out events that would have happened um... then, yet something that, you know, just three weeks later... Uh, where clearly okay. there were breaches very of brief, guidelines. For very that, brief for, response on that. For somebody that to... wasn't going to bring it up, he brought it up. So the PSNI dealt with that. That was dealt with at the time. These are sanctions that the minister knew uh, this, this celebration was going on. He should have brought the sanctions in there and now. All right, well, um, to other news now. Mental health services have been an issue throughout the pandemic, but it's been brought into sharp focus in the past week. A lot of that focus is due to a, re a review into failures in child and adolescent mental health services in South Kerry, revealed, uh, it published just this week. It has led to questions over the future of mental health services in this country. Um, in a moment, we will get to our panel, Senator uh, Malcolm Byrne and Sinn Féin TD, Mark Ward. Um, we're also joined by CEO of Mental Health Reform, Fiona Coyle. But first, um, I'm joined on the line by Keith Rolls, a solicitor for many of the families affected in Kerry. Keith, you're very welcome along to the programme. You are, as I say, representing families in Kerry affected by what's happened to their children. But you've been contacted by other families outside of Kerry too, who are worried about the services that were offered to their children and worried about what's happened. Hi, Claire. Yes, I, we have. We, our offices have been contacted by, by a large number of families throughout the country. But at the moment, you know, we still have concerns um, effectively at home for me in Kerry in relation to all the, pati the patients of the HSC and now our clients that we are re representing. And we have very, a huge amount of concerns regarding the treatment they've received. Concerns around the missing records that hasn't been addressed by the HSC. Concerns about missing files and concerns about the 1,100 no-harm letters that have gone out to families where... Unfortunately, the HSE hasn't confirmed or hasn't made any effort in contacting these families to confirm if there are any missing records um, in the files uh, in relation to their families that have received a no-harm correspondence. We're also instructed by a lot of families who have received no-harm correspondence who have subsequently contacted the HSE and CAMS, outlined their concerns, informed the HSE of the medication that they were prescribed, that the HSE were unaware of, and subsequently received apologies and outlined which included the deficits in care and the apologies. So, it's very concerning um, in relation to how comprehensive this report has been. Um, what do families want to see now, Keith? Um, we, we've heard from the HSE, they say they'll carry out a national audit of CAM services. The scope uh, currently being identified will be finalised by the Minister for Health to initiate the process for the benefit of uh, patients and services, service users. I, is that good enough from the family's point of view or what, what would they like to see happen as a matter of urgency? 
Well, I think families first and foremost want to ensure that their loved ones are getting the treatment they deserve. Um, I think the whole country is aware that this, uh, this certainly hasn't happened in Kerry. Um, there's huge concerns around uh, surrounding this throughout the country at the moment. But certainly here in Kerry, families have been deprived of the service that they are entitled to and the service that they sought from the HSC. You know, uh, this has been very well documented in the HSC as a report prepared by Dr. Sean Maskey in the UK. Again, we have I, this is certainly not a slight on Sean Maskey's report, but certainly in relation to the HSC's understanding of the term comprehensive and my client's understanding of the term comprehensive and our own understanding of the term comprehensive re how thorough this report was and how thorough it can be due to the fact that there is uh, such a huge amount of missing records on all the files that we're aware of. Okay, Keith, thank you for that. Thank you for joining us um, with your insights and just the latest on what's happening with the families there in Kerry. Um, Fiona, I'd like to come to you from mental health reform's point of view. It's certainly been in the spotlight. You would say it's not in the spotlight actually enough at all. And it's something that you have been pushing for, for many, many years in terms of wanting to see change in this area. But how are the system failures that have been identified there in Kerry, do you believe, reflective of the broader problem right across the country? Yeah, undoubtedly this report has shocked the country. You know, it showed systemic failures, like there's clinical failures, management failures, um, oversight failures and you know it's it sent shockwaves throughout the country and I think it really shows for us the need to have clear leadership and oversight on mental health within the HSE and we've been really calling for the last number of years for the reinstatement of the director of mental health role within the HSE. And that's so important. You need someone there to pull together kind of at leadership level, mm. to report directly into Paul Reid, to drive the change and the reform that's needed. And there's a huge opportunity now to reform, to ensure that what happened in Kerry does not happen again. Has there been nobody in that position as Director of Mental Health Services in this country since 2016? Is that right, Fiona? That's correct, And yeah. why is that the case? I think that that's a question that, that remains unanswered. It, it, it was done away with in terms of um, restructuring within the HSC um, at the time. So it would have been before the current um, CEOs um, took up his role. Um, and I think from our perspective, mm. you know, for parity of esteem, you know, mental health has come into the spotlight so much over the last two years. It's mm. been historically underprioritized, underfunded. And, you know, I think people of this country, they're going, look, this isn't good enough. And this report has really shocked again the country and made people realize, you know what, we need to prioritize our mental health services and we need to ensure that leadership and that oversight mm -hmm. is there um, to drive forward reform. M Malcolm, clearly a shocking report showing a huge lack of resources um, critically bad decision-making resulting in serious harm to young people. And yet, are we going to do anything about it? Well, we are. And I think, Which Claire, is? Uh, Claire, so there, there are a number of measures um, that, uh, that are being taken. And central to all of this, and I spoke with Mary Butler, the Minister for Mental Health Services uh, this evening, uh, central to all of this has to be an approach where uh, the children concerned and their families are put first. So in the very first instance, and I suppose in terms of the, the issues that Keith raised, uh, that we'll move to a situation of non-adversarial compensation. Um, we want to see a situation whereby 
those who have suffered will be compensated and that they don't have to be dragged through the courts. And secondly, the other very important immediate thing is that therapies and supports are made available uh, to those who have, been, who have been impacted. It was shocking, it was unacceptable what has happened. But then the question is, you know, well, what do we learn from this? Because it wasn't just, and it's not just South Kerry. Uh, so what Minister Butler has now arranged is uh, that there will be, there are two audits, two separate audits that are taking place among all 73 CAMS services around the country. One is a, an audit of the compliance and structures uh, within CAMS. The second is around the issue, as Fiona mentioned, around uh, prescribing standards to ensure mm. that prescribing standards are consistent uh, around the country. And certainly I agree, and you know Minister yeah. Butler has been, and I, I would like to think that Minister Mary Butler has been providing uh, the leadership that is necessary within the sector. She is supporting uh, the re-establishment of the Office uh, of the Director of National Mental Health. It was something that we insist on being built into the programme uh, for but government. it hasn't happened yet it, it, in terms it, of a, a director It, it, it hasn't happened yet. And it's also important, by the place. way, that the director would report directly to the CEO. Uh, I think the other, which, which is, I think, you know, in that audit, which will look at a lot of the issues around prescribing standards and so on, I think the other, there has been an acknowledgement around you know, the lack of staff. And if we look at it within the last year... And this year, is old news. It, it like, is. This is very but, but, well known that there's it, a huge resourcing it, it, issue. It, it is. So all but of this seems very reactive. Would you but not it, agree? But it's not. But in the last year, in 2021, uh, there have been 53 additional clinical staff recruited into CAMS. And one of the problems with CAMS, and I know this from the experience with regards to CAMS in Wexford, uh, has been, uh, it's not that the money isn't there for the, the particular posts. It, it's there are recruitment difficulties. Uh, and, you know, it, I, I, I can tell you in terms of from the government's perspective, if we could have every consultant post filled in the morning, it would be the case. But as we know, which we saw with CAMS in Wexford, the post was offered to somebody who turned it down uh, 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 and, you know, it had to be, it had to be re-advertised. Yeah. Well, we, we know that's an issue, uh, not just in Wexford, but everywhere, clearly, as this report has shown. Mm -hmm. um, you want, there's a private member's bill that Sinn Féin is, is taking tomorrow. What do you want to see specifically... Um, what are you asking for? What are you calling for now? There have been plenty of calls over yeah. the years. Specifically, what would you like to see now? So first and foremost, we need to protect our children and we need, we need to fix our, mental, our children's mental health services. I do agree with Malcolm. What we need to really start are those children that were affected in Kerry. Those children that were affected in South Kerry need to be able to be put back onto the road to recovery. They need to have the service in place here and now and then we can look at recourse and, and, and legal actions later down the road. We also need to start looking at wider issues in, in relation to 3,000 children waiting for, uh, for appointment for CAMS. Over 846 of these children are over six months or more. Mm -hmm. primary, primary care psychology, there's 9,500 children waiting for appointments at the moment. Over 4,000 of these children are waiting for over a year. So it's not working. It's not working at the moment, and we need to address this. Can I just make one point? And behind these, I can say stats all day, but behind these stats, there's children. There's children with hopes and dreams and ambitions, and they're being, they're being stalled now because of the, the lack of services in, in youth mental yeah. health services. Uh, you know, I, I know, and I know mental health reform has said that 2022, this year, is due to be historic in terms of you know, reform in the area of mental health services. Is it going to address these problems that we're talking about, like the waiting lists, um, more than 200 um, children waiting more than a year? Like, they're at crisis point. So what is waiting a year? Like, how is that going to impact on them, on their families? You know, how many deaths are we going to see? How many tragedies will occur out of this? And will the reform that you're calling for address that, Fiona? 
Yeah, so why it's a historic year is in terms of our mental health legislation, which is completely out of sync with international human rights law currently. And it's seven years in the making that this legislation has been updated. And in fairness to, to Minister of State Mary Butler, she's shown determination. And there's a draft bill there that's currently going through the, the Houses of the, the Rockets and is going through pre-legislative scrutiny. Um, mm. And that, that bill, I think, will you know, move us towards a more person-centred, recovery-focused delivery of care in legislation. But then that needs to be matched by, you know, action on, on the ground. And yeah. I think something just to, to mention quickly is, you know, around funding and, you know, looking at our kind of peers and where we are in relation to funding, like high quality services need high levels of yeah. investment. And that's what I want to ask you about, mm. Malcolm Byrne, just briefly. Are, is there enough money allocated in the budget to mental health funding? Like six, it represents 6% of overall mental health budget. WHO recommends 12%. Sloan Chicare recommends 10%. We're at 6%. It's nothing really yeah, uh, compared to what's required, is it? I agree. I entirely agree. Um, it is, at the moment, we, we, it's the largest mental health budget ever at 1.149 billion. Yeah, but is that 6% uh, of the men of, 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 of the, the overall health, health budget? budget. Uh, it's 6% of the overall health budget. It's, that's not uh, enough, though, and, according... And, and, and like the WHO says double that. Yeah, that's it's, what's needed. It's entirely, it's entirely accepted that it's not enough. It's like, I suppose, with any issue, the, always more money can be spent. There are a number of specific specific measures uh, that, that, you know, that, that are being taken. And I think we do need an all-island uh, approach on, on, on this as well. But there are a number of very specific measures that are being taken. Minister Butler last week, as you're aware, made a million euro available to community-based organisations uh, that deal with mental health services. There's a million euro that is now being made available uh, to my mind mm -hmm. uh, to provide 16,500 hours in over 15 languages for people who are dealing with mental health issues as a result of COVID. And, and I think everyone will agree, coming out of the COVID period, and whether you're talking to professionals or to voluntary organisations, we are seeing a, a lot more referrals, a lot okay. more people dealing with issues around isolation uh, and, and mental health. So it is a priority. All right. All and right. I think, in fairness, Minister Mary Butler uh, has been championing okay. that case. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, there's lots more to discuss on this. We'll see how Sinn Féin get on tomorrow with that private member's bill. Um, it'll stay very much in the headlines, I imagine. Just to let you know, you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. Um, now, in the UK, uh, another report into lockdown gatherings has been released, this one into alleged gatherings at Downing Street. It highlighted failures of leadership and judgment. Uh, our reporter, Ollie Barrett, joins me now live from London. Ollie, uh, take us through um, Boris Johnson having to respond to this once again um, on this scandal. Another day, another apology. What did he have to say about the findings, findings albeit the redacted findings from that uh, Sue Gray report? Well, as you say, another apology for Boris Johnson in the House of Commons, insisting that he is sorry for the events that have taken place, but also how the response to them has been handled as well. In the House of Commons, he set out that apology. He talked as well about the government response to it. He said he accepted the findings of the report in full, even though this is an incomplete report at this stage. And so he says he's going to shake up his uh, administration in Downing Street. He's going to review the code of conduct for special advisers and for civil servants 
as well. He says he's going to listen to his backbench MPs much more and he's told them in a separate meeting this evening that he will be much more uh, of a listening Prime Minister to his backbench Conservative MPs and the party. But Boris Johnson also saying, in response to quite a lot of specific questions about which parties he may not may or may not have attended, referring uh, parliamentarians back to the police investigation that is still going on, which is the reason that this report from Sue Gray had so much information redacted. So there is still a good amount hanging over Boris Johnson, even as he accepts this first report, the findings it has been able to make uh, and insists he's going to try and uh, make changes in Downing Street and also show, he says, that his government can be trusted. OK, thank you, Ollie Barrett, for the very latest there from Westminster. Now, coming up next, Spotify is to show a COVID advisory warning after a row over misinformation. Emmett Ryan and Dave Fanning join me live. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. The family of a woman murdered by her husband three years ago has urged anyone in a domestic abuse situation to seek help. Alan Ward was today given the mandatory term of life in prison for murdering his wife Catherine or Cathy Doyle in 2019. Well, our court's correspondent Deborah Naylor has the latest. Deborah, you were in court today. Tell us about the background to this case and that resulted in today's sentencing of Alan Ward. Yes, Claire. Well, Alan Ward was convicted last December of murdering his wife, uh, Cathy or Catherine Doyle, um, his wife of 23 years now. His trial heard how the couple's marriage was marked by, by arguments and abuse that Cathy suffered at the hands of her husband. And in the early hours of March 1st, 2019, Alan Ward followed his wife upstairs and he stabbed her to death. Now, the couple's son, uh, Adam Ward, who was 20 years old at the time, he, he tried to intervene and uh, his father threatened to kill him, attempted to stab him and basically ran down the stairs. Now, emergency services responded. They came to the scene, but unfortunately, uh, Cathy Doyle's injuries were, were serious and she lost her life. Now, at today's uh, sentence hearing, we heard that the mother of three, she was uh, described as a very bubbly, kind-hearted person, someone who was a role model to her sons and she was described as their best friends. And Alan Ward, in a letter read out in court today, uh, he, he pleaded not guilty in this case and he argued diminished responsibility um, on the grounds that he had 
He had had a mental disorder, having suffered a stroke a number of years previously. However, the jury rejected uh, this, um, looking at his past violence towards his wife, and they convicted him of murder. Today, he said in a letter read out in court, he was very sorry for his actions. He took full responsibility for them and that he effectively wished that he could turn the clock back and that he now couldn't look at his sons. And sentencing him today to the mandatory term of life in prison, well, the sentencing judge, Mr Justice Tony Hunt, said this case is uh, one, he said, of many uh, cases, a conveyor belt, continuing conveyor belt of cases in court. Um, effectively, he said, uh, resulting from domestic violence. And he said today that he wished people could look at cases like this and at days like today and perhaps uh, refrain from engaging in such violence with such tragic outcomes. And Deborah, the family had a very strong message that they wanted to relay outside court today. Tell us about that. Yes, well, the investigating guard that spoke briefly outside court today, and he was accompanied um, in the shop, which you'll see in a moment, with Adam Ward, who was uh, Cathy or, or Catherine Doyle's son. And Adam gave evidence during the trial that not only did he witness the events of the night of his mother's death, but he said that during the trial, um, his mother, he, you know, he, he described her as someone, he said his father didn't want her going out on her own. He said he witnessed on many occasions his father punching his mother. He said his, his father would antagonise his mother while they were drinking and that effectively she felt like she was being controlled and the family today urged any victims of domestic violence uh, to, to seek help before it's too late as we can now hear. It is a great feeling knowing our mother was loved by so many people. Going forward we'd like now to ask privacy for the family so that we as a family can heal. We urge anyone in a domestic violence situation to please seek help. On behalf of Angarda Siakana, I would like to reiterate those comments in relation to people that are in abusive or violent relationships. Seek help. Come to Angarda Siakana, the courts, or any of the agencies that are there to help you. So as you heard there, that message was reiterated by Gardaí today. Anyone, they say, who's in immediate danger, contact 999. But there's also a range of services, they said, available to people. And for local services, you can go on to safeireland.e. That's for local domestic um, abuse services. And, and you can see all the range of websites as well on gov.e. For anyone who may be watching tonight and who is unfortunately in that scenario, the message is seek help before it's too late. OK, Deborah, thank you for that. Music streaming giant Spotify has announced it will start guiding listeners of podcasts discussing COVID-19 to more information about the pandemic. Well, it follows a campaign of our podcaster Joe Rogan, one of the platform's main stars. Music legends like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell had pulled their music from the streaming site. Here's what Joe Rogan had to say in response. If there's anything that I've done that I could do better is uh, have more experts with differing opinions right after I have the controversial ones. My pledge to you is that I will do my best to try to balance out these more controversial viewpoints with other people's perspectives so we can maybe find a better point of view. Well, I'm joined by Emmett Ryan, tech journalist at the Business Post and broadcaster Dave Fanning. Um, to come to you first, Emmett, on that, what do you make of that statement from Joe Rogan? Obviously, all eyes on him and what he was going to say after this debacle with Neil Young, where Neil Young essentially said to Spotify, you choose me or Joe, um, and they chose Joe Rogan. 
well, he had 100 million reasons to want them to choose him because that's what Spotify have paid to have Joe Rogan exclusively on their platform. And this really feels a bit like a sop, like even like the warning Spotify have said they're putting ahead of it. It reminds you of what you sort of see in sort of, you know, drink or gambling ads where there's that little bit of a thing, oh, by the way, here's the help site just in case. Spotify are doing the bare minimum just to avoid any further scrutiny after they lost two big but not really needle movers in terms of their subscription artists last week. And like what they're really worried about is, is a Taylor Swift going to follow? Is an Ariana Grande or a Bad Bunny? And that's why they're trying to show that we're going to do enough to keep them on side. Yeah, Dave, on that, um, is it sad to say that, you know, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young don't hold the same sway as the likes of Ariana Grande or Taylor Swift God, when no. it comes I mean, to Come these. on, their heyday is so long ago. They know that more than anybody <laughs> yeah. else. I mean, like, 100 million he's getting... Like, they're going to buy his past podcast as well, or they are paying for those as well. But, I mean, if he gets a million quid a podcast on advertising, then in the space of two years, they're going to get their 100 million back. And after that, it's profit all the way. So he's 10 times bigger than anybody else you might mention. But that apology there is absolutely appalling. It puts Prince Andrew in the shade. I mean, the thing is, like, he, he's saying, like, he's, it's like, it's like somebody beats up their partner and says, I'm sorry if I hurt you. Like, that's more or less what he's saying. Mm -hmm. He doesn't give two hoots. And at one stage, you know what he said, which I thought was really, is he trolling Joni Mitchell? He says, I love Joni Mitchell, he says in the thing. You know, I love that song, Chucky's in Love. That wasn't Joni Mitchell. That was Ricky Lee Jones. And he damn well knows that. Or if he doesn't know that, then he doesn't know Joni Mitchell. So one way or the other, he's just chancing his arm. He doesn't give two hoots. He really doesn't. Yeah, so what does it mean for the likes of Neil Young that sort of when they make that okay. stand? Neil Young, you've got to understand, I mean, Americans might say he's got skin in the game. He seriously does have history here. Joni Mitchell got polio at the age of nine. He got polio at the age of five. And it was before there were any vaccines. They have believed and understand vaccines for the last 50 mm. years. They know exactly how they work. They know exactly how efficacious they are. And they've been brilliant for everything they needed. Joe, not Joe, what's his name? Neil Young also, by mm. the way, has three kids. Um, his daughter has epilepsy and his other two have cerebral, cerebral palsy, the two of them. And all his life he's really been, you know, going against everything that has to be done in terms of trying to make his life work mm -hmm. out well. And the vaccines have worked and all the stuff has worked as well. He's done loads of gigs, loads of concerts. He's got involved in so many different things from the Monsanto thing yeah. to everything else. And he's really been up there and given his time and everything. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what it is. And when he sees Joe Rogan talking to people, knowing damn well what Joe Rogan is up to, knowing damn well that Joe Rogan doesn't mm. give a damn about putting somebody else in the next day who'll say, well, actually, vaccines are great. He just goes, that's it, I've had enough. And also, like, Neil Young knew that, like, they were going to choose Joe Rogan over him. He was doing oh, that. Absolutely. He was very that well was aware. my next question. Was yeah. he aware when he made that of stand course. that it would, no it would make headlines, but, but essentially but he, knew he was going to be attention. off the streaming site? Exactly. He and knew it was going to draw attention. And it really has. Have and they like, really gone down six billion in valuation in the last four days? So that's kind of an interesting day. So they did, but they've clawed it back for the most part. But now, they're, which is why we're seeing all this today, they're worried it could happen again. Like market analysts are naturally going to go, well, was Spotify overvalued? Because if something like Neil Young leaving the platform can lead to sort of that quick crash yeah. in the value, mm -hmm. and like we were, we were saying, we all know Neil Young isn't going to move the needle for them. Analysts are going to ask, well, have we overvalued what Spotify really is as a whole? And Spotify is obviously worried about like a larger artist suddenly taking a similar stand. Yeah. Because if, if say, Taylor Swift left tomorrow, people would ask, well, where are you going to listen to Taylor they Swift? They had a big fight. Spotify had a big well, fight with Taylor Swift six years ago. They did. A very yeah. major fight. They had a big fight five years ago with the Black Lives, with, with, with the Black music not being played and all the rest. But they got over that, those yeah. pretty easily, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like on this, I suppose it questions the future of music and it really puts the focus on the fact in order to listen to some of our favourite artists, 
you know, we don't actually own that music. They no. don't, and they're being paid very little for it. The and record companies get paid. They don't really it, get paid at all. It's not like... That's the, it's that's not like the bottom kind of, line. It's, yeah, it's, it's not there's like something legal in it for the record companies, or buying a CD but not for the artists. Yeah, exactly. And What's that is in it for us, So though? in other words, if Neil Young has opened a Pandora's box, is it great, now we can all... But, but, like, what's in it for us, like what Claire was saying, it's convenience. Mm. But yeah. that Spotify oh, yeah. has basically brought this war to themselves because Spotify figured, right, well, we've got them all listening for music now. What's our next way to grow listeners? We'll become the podcast homes. A lot of these podcasts, you could have gotten them anywhere before. Like Joe Rogan was on YouTube, never mind all the platforms. You know, lots of other podcasts were similar. They're on every platform for free. Spotify's attitude was, we'll give these people sweetheart deals. They'll come here and their listeners will then get Spotify, Spotify subs, which sounds great on paper until you realise Spotify was playing the poor mouth for years with all the musicians saying, we can only pay you this fraction of a fraction yeah. of a fraction of a cent. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we can afford to give sweetheart deals to all these podcasters. Musicians are naturally going to get a bit up in arms. And if they see a chance to have a chance to, to just have a dig at Spotify, they're going to take yeah, it. Yeah, and if you want Neil Young's music, you can go to Apple and Apple are already saying, hey, yeah. we're Apple, we're the home of Neil Young. And there's loads more might just do the exact same thing. And loads of people now realise there's more out there than Spotify, all in the last five days because of Neil Young. Yeah, and I guess the question is, does that change um, Spotify? focus then like they paid big money for, for Joe Rogan for for the podcast is that where they is that what's more important to them is that where they see as you say getting an easy subscription and after that well yeah you can you can conveniently listen to your favorite music but, but to, for real music fans yeah you can you can go to apple or you can go is, elsewhere the problem Claire, is your growth is always based on a younger market and if you're going to get that younger market to buy subscriptions they're not really the Joe Rogan listeners, like you know. They're more, they more look like me, to be honest. Even though I don't listen to them, and uh, I'm not the person you need to be, you know, convincing to join Spotify. It's a person who's 18, 19, or even younger yeah. to get them to get the subscription on, because that's how you keep growing your market. And music definitely is a bigger growth area with that market than podcasts and standard audio radio, so to speak, is. And if you want to keep growing that end, you've got to make sure you're protecting yourself on the music side as well as going into the podcast space. Yeah, it's interesting when you said, Dave. You know, we were talking about that. Like Neil Young knew he was going to lose this vibe essentially he doesn't own about 50% of his music in well, any that case whole thing is, that is, the, is case? the other part that's happened with Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen and all the rest of them called the members of Fleetwood Mac and a few others they've sold their music on to other entities but that's that's not actually the point that's on here there's no way that Neil Young actually thought that Spotify was going to say Neil we'll have you to hell with Joe Rogan that's not going to happen not after giving Joe Rogan 100 million a few months ago yeah but- should we worry though about legacy and about you know great artists and not hearing them enough because where we get our music now, essentially for convenience purposes or otherwise, you know, we're not buying, we're not buying no, CDs, we're not. you know, yeah, yeah. Um, that th- this is where it's at. Yeah, but there are other streaming platforms and they're yeah. doing very well in the last four uh, days. They're yeah, delighted with this. Like I think people have heard of these platforms for pretty much the first time for a lot of them yeah. in the last four days. Like, you know, I've had more people asking me, like, where can I listen to stuff if I don't want to have Spotify anymore? Yeah. And I typically go, well, Deezer is huge in France. It just happens to be its main market. And a lot of people will want to make the point. They yeah. just will actually want to make the point about, I agree with Neil Young, I'll go elsewhere. Yeah, yeah you'd wonder with that stock market hit, does it pose a bigger challenge now for Spotify's survival? Well, I mean, it, you it, said it, it, I said six million that they lost in the last six billion, oh, six billion the last last few days. You said, yeah, but they got it back. Is they, that how quickly it happened? They got it back, but it, it is unfortunately that's how crazy, especially with content-based businesses. But they got it back, but they, they clearly are still worried. It could, if it could happen that easily, yeah. like that quickly, they're worried it could happen again and be a lot heavier next time out. So when it comes to sort of that convenience factor, Spotify is a very replicable product. Like mm. being able to get these podcasts exclusively was one of the few things it was doing to make it sort of you know 
hard to replace in your life was the approach. Yeah. If people start looking at musicians and kind of going the same way, like Tidal tried to do it, but its price point was just too high at the time. It was about twice the price of Spotify per month. If someone starts looking at sort of these like sort of more younger in demand artists, like, you know, which have a large following and it's quite handy because Spotify publishes the statistics every month. So anyone trying to buy them knows exactly who to buy. Uh, you know, that would suddenly be a bit of a needle mover for Spotify. Yeah. Uh, and we know how quickly media trends move on. Um, we'll have to see where this story goes. We'll leave it there. My thanks to Dave Fanning and to Emmett Ryan. Lots more coming up after this break. We take a look at how you can get more out of your pension. Stay with us. The Central Statistics Office has revealed that a third of the working population aged between 20 and 69 still have no pension coverage outside of the state pension. Let's take a look into what you can do to rectify that and other questions. I'm joined by financial planning expert Paul Merriman. Paul, you're very welcome along to the programme. The issue of pensions, um, apologies now, we hope it's not sending people to sleep, but it's actually really important. Listen up, this is going to be interesting to you. Um, Let's make it, it interesting. Is, do you know, I was looking at that report, uh, the CSO report, so a third of people, like, that, that's, that's a very high number, isn't it? Like, when you're, you know, talking yeah. from age 20, like, maybe you're not thinking about it at age 20, yeah. Yeah. but certainly when you're getting towards late 30s, 40s, you would think that a lot of people would start considering it at that point. Yeah, I think you're right. I think when you look at someone in their 20s, you're not going to be thinking about this. But I also think the industry has massively failed people. Like pensions are the single best way for anyone to accumulate wealth and to reduce their tax bill uh, and get exposure to maybe stocks and shares and investing. Um, and I think it's such a shame that the industry hasn't actually conquered this yet. I don't know why. I'm in the industry over 20 years, still haven't managed to correct it. And I really don't know why that is because the tax relief, the tax-free growth, it's just a phenomenal plan to be in. Um, I think the most people that are in those statistics are probably people that have company pension plans as well. Let's be honest, where the company sets them up, you know, puts a few quid in for you and you match it, then you get your tax relief. Uh, when it comes to personal pensions, self-employed, definitely not planning for enough here. Uh, and it's such a shame because they're missing out on all this free money. And it's yeah. literally free money from the revenue. Maybe the, one of the things is it's not instant gratification. You are investing yeah. now for your future. You're yeah. not going to see it until yeah. you're older. And for many people, and we talked to them the whole time on the programme and, and, you know, um, they get on to us. It's things like housing, yeah. things like childcare. It's the big issues that are facing them right now yeah. that they feel I'm not in a position to set aside cash yeah. for when I'm in you know, my late 60s. And this comes back to having a really good financial plan or a financial planner that can help you with this because it's all about balance. You don't have to put thousands into the pension plan or young or even hundreds. Something on a monthly basis, if you wanted to, start small and go. But also, people need to realise if you're 30, 35 or even 40 and you haven't got a pension, you have decades to sort that out. So I do think that people feel that they're under pressure to start pension plans very young as well. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think if you're in your 20s and you can get a company pension plan or if you can afford to put money aside, great, do it, get the tax relief. But you should be prioritising getting a deposit for a house. You should be prioritising having no debt, having an emergency fund and the basics of financial planning and then looking at the pension plan okay. at some stage. You were making a point, if you start investing mm -hmm. €300 Euro a month, what you can yes. make by, by the end? Yeah, so if you're on the higher rate of income tax, so pensions are tax deductible, so if you're on the higher rate of income tax, so typically earning over €36,800, you can put €500 Euro into a pension, but it's only going to cost you €300 because Euro you get 40% relief. So that's €75 Euro a week, and if you can do that for 30 years and get a 6% return, you're going to be looking at about half a million. So if you started at 35, you'll have that half a million by 65, 
If you started at 30, you'll have it by 60, obviously. And if you started at 25, you're going to have it by 55 years of age. So but that's an incentive to people. Yes. Just on that, because there's a couple of different pension types. Um, there's the defined contribution scheme that we were mm -hmm. talking about, that the, the, the employer then, you would put in a certain yes. amount of money and your employer would match that. Then yes. you're going to yield even more. Uh, 100%. So like I said, if you look at that example where you're putting in 500 euro and the employer matches it. Now, the defined benefit scheme, the employer doesn't have to match, but most will. Uh, the minimum they must put in is a tenth of your contribution. But typically speaking, most out there will actually match what you're putting in. It's usually a percentage of your salary as well. So either 2%, 5%, 8%, whatever, depending on the company and how generous the employer is. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's literally free money. And we get people come to reach us out all the time saying to us that we have a company pension plan and we haven't got into it yet. Like it's pure madness because okay. you're getting free money from the employer and free money from revenue. So, so for people who are self-employed, a, per, um, a, a personal, personal pension, pension is something yes. they're looking at. Yeah. What's important there when you're considering that? I suppose getting advice and making sure the charging structures are okay because it comes to a company pension, your company's going to appoint the company they're going to deal with in the Irish marketplace. But with a personal pension, like, I mean, anyone that has a personal pension that got one through a bank really needs to get it reviewed ASAP because a bank is the most expensive way to pick up a pension plan because the banks are usually just tied to one company in the marketplace, mm -hmm. and the fees are usually horrendous compared to what you probably get in the Irish broker market, for argument's sake, or with a certified financial planner. So you'd always recommend anyone that has a bank pension to make sure they get it reviewed to reduce your charges. So because, talk to your bank? Well, and then, yeah, <laughs> I, I'd look at the bank, ask them what the charges are, and then shopper, go to the broker you, market and try and get it cheaper. You, yeah, you'd go to the broker market, or are there kind they, of price comparison sites yeah, or does it so work that way when it comes to pensions? Not really when it comes to pensions. So the broker market will tend to deal with all the life assurance companies in the marketplace and the SAP providers, etc. And they're going to be able to negotiate on your behalf. And it's about negotiating with your financial advisor and your broker as well uh, to make sure they're getting you the best deal. And when it comes to pensions, the biggest, I suppose, rip-off is probably what's called an allocation charge. So that's a charge you get paid going into your pension. And the industry makes this very confusing. It's called an allocation rate. So if I said to you, you put money into a pension mm -hmm. and you get a 95% allocation rate, you won't know what that means. But it means only 95% is allocated. So you're losing 5% on the way in. So you're looking for someone to give you 100% allocation, meaning all of that 500 we mentioned is being hitting the pension plan. Okay. Does that make sense to make sure you're not leaking charges on the way in? And like I said, the majority of pensions I've seen from the banks in particular would have that at least 3 or a 5% charge on the way in. But you can avoid that. You can avoid that 100%. Okay. But also if you're trying to get a 6% return and you're getting charged 3 or 5 on the way in and then a management charge on top of that, you're really going okay. nowhere. There's a big move towards sustainability. This also yes. plays into the, the pension uh, place as well, doesn't it? There's, yeah, a, there's it, a move towards that kind massive of thing, the eco-pension. Yes, there is. Yeah. So ESG and investing. ESG investing has become a really big thing over the last number of years. Uh, there's a lot of governance around this now from the central bank, from the European central bank, I suppose, as well, in relation to how they're classified. Uh, so it's very important we look at an ESG fund. And these are really picking companies that are going to be doing good for the world and for the planet rather than doing negative things. Um, and it's a big buzz in the industry. Uh, one of the funds, uh, one Standard Life, have a really good fund there. And that, I think, typically is 13% over the last three years or something on average. They're really good. Irish Life have one as well. So there, there's some really good options in the marketplace. But making sure you're ESG, there's typically speaking three classes in an ESG fund. You're looking for what's called an Article 9, and that's a really thoroughbred ESG fund mm -hmm. that really is a good fund. There's other watered-down versions, and there's a little bit of kind of ambiguity around whether they really are ESG or not. So for a big tip for uh, viewers tonight is to go for something that's an Article 9. There's not very many of them in the marketplace, but that's going to give you a kind of bigger bang for your book, okay. in my opinion. Um, when we look at you know, the current market and inflation and all of that that's happening right now, um, does that play into your pension at all? Is that something you should be concerned about or consider 
it depends on your age profile, Terry, to be honest with you. So if you're someone that's in your 20s, 30s, 40s, or even maybe early 50s, no. If you're thinking of retiring in the next number of years, you shouldn't have too much of your portfolio exposed to stocks and shares. You should have way less. So the younger you are, the more stocks and shares you should have, and the older you get, the more you should be diversified. Like taking a down. broker or something would advise you in that exactly, regard yeah. as you get older, yeah, that it, usual, it changes according yeah. to your... You know, usual, how soon you're going to be cashing it yeah. in. The usual play here is typically speaking 10 years from four retirements. So if you're going at 65 from 55, start putting maybe 10% of your portfolio into cash each year. So that means, you know, you get to 62, you'll only have 30% in equities and 70% in lower risk funds. <clears throat> so that's a really, <clears throat> excuse me, that's a really good idea. Okay, great. Lots of advice there. Um, that's it from us. My thanks to Paul. Uh, our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the lay team here, good night. Take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.